Hi, and welcome to another episode of Ed Choice Chats, School Choice and Pop Culture. Uh, we've been doing this for a little while now. We've been doing it with Harry Potter. I, was, I loved that one. I got to do that one. That was exciting. We've also done it with West Wing and, yes, Prime Minister, which I also got to do, which I loved. Uh, now we're going to do it with the American version of Yes Minister called House of Cards. And so we're really excited about that. And I'm joined today with uh, uh, myself, Robert Enloe, President and CEO of EdChoice, and Jennifer Wagner, our Vice President of Communications, who lives and breathes House of Cards all day long. So we're excited uh, to do this. And so I'll turn it over to you, Jen, to start us off. All right. Well, thank you, Robert. I don't live and breathe the most recent seasons, but I was hooked on these first few seasons. And the first season focuses around education and K-12 education and passing an omnibus bill that would include charters and some um, performance metrics for teachers. And so that's what we're going to get into today and, and how that uh, those couple of first episodes where they're passing the bill reflect real life and how policy gets passed and how politics and education are intertwined sometimes, often, at the expense of kids. So let's dive into our first clip here. Uh, we're watching uh, Kevin Spacey's character, Frank Underwood, who is the majority whip, uh, talk to Donald Blythe, who is uh, this long-standing education guru, liberal lion, who's going to get this bill uh, written and passed. So here we go. Bill is garbage, Donald. Tax increases, ban on vouchers, federal oversight. How do you expect me to get that through? A when committee? Linda told me to write it, she promised I'm that. I'm sure she said any number of things. Forget what they promised you, Donald. They want your name because it carries weight. Well, my name comes with my ideas. I understand, but you've got to be reasonable. This isn't the great debate. It's about passing meaningful reform. Maybe not everything you would have hoped, but help me help you. That's going to take time. Those ideas I've been developing. If it's time you need, I will buy you time. You've got to promise me your next at bat is going to give me something I can work with. Okay, Frank. I'll see what I can do. Good. And Donald, don't let this get you down. Why, together we're going to do more than you've been able to do in 25 years. Well, uh, obviously, uh, this is maybe a little bit overly dramatic about how things happen on Capitol Hill, but uh, Robert, what are your thoughts? How, do, how, does, how does a bill become law? Let's, so go, let's like Schoolhouse Rock style. I'd like to say that I've never seen someone look at a bill and literally throw it in the trash can, but I have seen that before. So Have you that, been that person? I have not been. Well, okay. I have thrown my own in the trash can, but not with a legislator president, I can tell you that much. Um, but what's interesting about this clip, what sets it up very uh, uniquely for, this, for the episodes to come, or the clips to come, is that Basically, they're starting immediately not from the policy, but from the politics, from the process and not what the right principles are. And so the argument is is not whether I like what uh, uh, Representative Blythe likes at all, whether, you know, ban on vouchers, tax increases. That Of course, I don't like those things, at least certainly the ban on vouchers. But I think what's interesting is they're not even at the front having a conversation about what the policy or the principles are. They're really saying, I got to get something passed. We got to get the right process. Help me to help you. Help me help you, you know. And, and Donald, we don't really need you. We just need your name, man. We just need to put your name on this bill so everybody knows it's got this imprimatur of K-12, uh, you know, education on it. And that's, 
I wish that it wasn't that way. I wish that this was not how things uh, worked. I will say this is a obviously a series of seasons set uh, in Washington, D.C. with Congress, which is not a place that we often go to and turn to for education solutions, perhaps because this is how Congress works. Perhaps. Now, it, it, as I was watching the clip again, it struck me how it reminded me of Ted Kennedy and No Child Left Behind, um, because it was immediately Ted Kennedy's name had to be on the No Child Left Behind bill. Otherwise, it never would have passed. And what were the compromises going to be? And what were uh, the policies that are going to be out there? I'm sure they didn't even talk about that. When I talked to one of his staffers one time, he, they said it was all about the money, making sure the money was right. So I, I think this is an interesting setup, and it should remind us all as we look to politics, whether it's in D.C. or anywhere, uh, about how process works. Absolutely. Well, let's get into our second clip. A complete overhaul. That would usually take months. Well, we only have days, not months. Oh, but think about the process. I mean, we can't when just When I change. ask my colleagues, your bosses... Who are the smartest minds in education? Out of hundreds, we arrived at you. The six of you in this room. Now, I realize it is a difficult task, but we have the opportunity to make history here. And I want all of us to make it together. So good luck. We're counting on you. Page one. These bullet points reflect the key planks at the center of our bill. Get comfy. This is your home until we have a presentable first draft. Ah, uh, the, the determination of youth, right, uh, who are getting in there for the good cause, to try and do the right policy, uh, even though they recognize that this process is being subverted. Uh, again, like the uh, No Child Left Behind reference earlier, this clip is interesting to me because I'd like to say I've never been on the end of one of those calls where it says, hey, who's the smartest person in teacher evaluation, Robert? And who do you know that's really good about uh, testing and standardized tests and stuff? It's interesting how. Uh, we always look for the smart people to get in a room and figure things out, which is not necessarily always a bad thing, but it should remind us to be humble as we look about policy and think about policy, right? So it's great that we have all these ideas, but what you find in the later clips is these. I, this is the only time they actually talk about policy and the rest that is gone. That is definitely true. And, and, and this, this clip, I, I think, especially strikes me because I lived in D.C. for a couple years, and I have a lot of, I am not myself a very smart person who went to a very fancy school, but... I have a lot of friends who are, and they were all in rooms like this at some point, drafting maybe education policy, maybe defense policy, maybe environmental policy. And they all had great ideas, right? They came to the table with everything they read in college and everything they'd studied and policy briefs from, you know, this think tank or that think tank. But at the end of the day, they didn't actually have real life knowledge of the thing that they were making policy. To your point, sometimes that's fine. A lot of times we're going to, you know, rely on data and metrics. But I'm guessing, judging by, you know, looking at the age of these folks, that m many of them are probably not parents. And, you know, we, we get into this with the later clips as well. But nowhere in any of this podcast will you, except for a couple of times, see any reference to parents or students. And again, not that really smart people can't make really good policy, but Washington in particular is kind of a place where the end user gets pushed way to the back burner. See, I would argue that's on both sides, on both the end user, the parents and the child on one side, and the teachers on the other side, right, as you'll see in later clips. And this is also reminding me of something that's fresh in my mind. You know, with a lot of states doing their ESSA, uh, Every Student Succeeds Act uh, plans, uh, I came to learn yesterday 
that a lot of states have differing goals and benchmarks for differing races. Uh, not just my home state of Indiana, where my superintendent thinks that it's okay uh, to expect something different from a child of color. Uh, I think that's across the country, and reasonably, you could see the policy arguments behind that. But how do you say that to a parent? Hey, because you live here, because you look like that, maybe we're just going to expect a little bit less from your son. I, I think this is what happens when you get smart people in a room. It's the, it's the lack of humility that we got to be careful about, that we've got to always remember, because it's always in the real world where these policies get implemented. I will say, though, Washington, D.C., not good at maybe, you know, K-12 education policy. Really good at acronyms, though. Yeah. Super good at that. That's right. ESSA, we've got, you know, all kinds of different acronyms in, in K-12 and every agency. So really good job, Washington, Oh, no, it's, it's, I mean, if, if you think about it, it's ESEA went to NCLB, went to RTT, went to ESSA. Oh, I forgot about RTT. RTT, race to the top. Oh, RIP, RTT. I know. <laughs> all right, we're going to move on to our next clip. Page 43, Section 7. We'd like some clarification. Section 7 has to do with the evaluative measures. Evaluative by measures. We're talking about here are performance standards, plain and simple. We can't have that. We open that can of worms. Got to take it out. The bro. administration wants it then in. Then we're all wasting our time. Well, look, I can cut down the frequency of testing, but it's got That's to be part of the overall... That's the thin edge of a two-ton wedge. No way. Non-debatable. Right, hold on. There's no harm in hearing them out, right? Frank, what do you have in mind? We adjust Article 4. Hand me Article 4. We go every three years instead of two. Frank, for us to even consider... Marty, we can't negotiate time intervals here. If, I'm just saying if, the frequency could never be more than five Look, years. five is a little high, but if you could bend on that. Marty! I, wait, 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 and it's not just frequency. Veteran teachers would have to be exempt if they have a proven record of excellence with the students. Well, excuse me for a moment. Corey, will you take the reins on? Right, so, Article 4, in terms of... Well, so, well that's, so how it's, a, that's how a good idea becomes a less good policy. So it's really interesting, it's like, as I was re-looking at that, it's like, the minute it gets into a policy conversation, Frank Underwood's gone, right? He actually leaves, right? So it's like, you know, veteran teachers, because I'm sitting there going, veteran teachers with a track record of good, good uh, classes should be exempt. Actually, that's a reasonable idea. If you got a good teacher, proven good teacher, the test scores have been great, the classroom management's been great, the parent satisfaction is great, I'd exempt the heck out of them from a lot of stuff, right? Because give them a lot of teacher freedom. We need more of that, you know. But the idea of evaluating teachers is, is, is an important thing because we have to do it. What you do with that evaluation is a whole other question. So I thought that was very interesting as they started getting the policy. And it was, it was also interesting. They have an idea, and now they got to start shopping it to the people that can help or hurt them. In this case, it's the union. Right. And, the, and so two things. Um, one, about our movement in particular, uh, is that this very conversation, right? So teacher evaluations it was something, and, and Mike McShane, our colleague, uh, just wrote about this um, in, in one of his reports uh, about, you know, where do, we, where do we maybe go off the rails when it came to evaluating and regulating? Well, teachers is, is one of them. So we decided, I don't know, not we, um, a lot of people in the a movement. A lot of really smart people a in lot of, D.C. Yes, they decided well, maybe 10, 15 years ago that what we really needed to do was we needed to hold these teachers accountable, right? Which, to your point, sounds great, right? Obviously, nobody wants to have underperforming teachers in their kids or any kid's classroom. But man, did we kind of let it get off the rails? We kind of were like, oh, now we've got you know, different accountability systems and we can do you know, performance pay and we can exempt these teachers and we can include those teachers and you know, here's how long a teacher can stay if they're on probation. And, and all of a sudden, now it looks like we don't like teachers when nothing could be further from the truth. They are in the classroom every day doing the hard work of teaching our kids but we 
didn't have a good solution to that everyday classroom experience and, and how they were feeling when it comes to the issue of teacher accountability. And it's a perfect example of how you have a great idea on paper and it doesn't work out in principle. And, and it's also a really important point to talk about systemic reform versus piecemeal reform. So, hey, let's have teacher evaluation, but hold on, let's not include parents in that process. Let's not include satisfaction of parents. Let's not include principals in that process. Let's make it only about a test score and only about a growth of test scores. So, you know, when we think about accountability, the, the, style, the title of the piece that Mike McShane did was Double Down or Do Over. It was actually Mike McShane and Paul DePerna. And, and the res- response from the groups that we brought together were very simple. Well, it's okay we've done testing, but maybe we took that a step too far. And it's interesting how, you know, we do need to learn from failure, but sometimes we gotta we have a lot of hubris. And this movement has got to be thoughtful about that. Well, and that, I think, is the other big takeaway from this clip is, you know, you have you mentioned this. Like, so as soon as the policy hits the table, you've got the debate, and then you got to go out and sell it. Yep. And so everybody goes out to their constituency group. And we make a mistake in that process of assuming that a teacher's union re- represents all teachers mm-hmm. or that a member of Congress represents all of the members of that person's party. And we make these broad-based assumptions. We also operate on fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can't put that in there because so-and-so will be mad. Or we can't, you know, we have to include this or it's a no-go. And again, missing from this clip, a common theme throughout this podcast, missing from this clip are parents. There's nobody there saying, you know what, let's go and convene a roundtable or a blue ribbon panel or whatever group of parents to see what they think about teacher accountability or what they think about performance pay. And so, again, that's something that, uh, has been missing a lot in this debate in real life right. and is certainly missing from, from this clip. That's right. I agree. All right, moving on. All right, what's, what's next up? I believe we get into the thick of ah. uh, teacher strikes and, and bricks being thrown through well, windows. So, so what's interesting about this, so the first clip was about, okay, so the president has an idea. He campaigned on it, right? right. So you got to so do gotta, it. Got to make it real. Got to make it real. Second one is about, okay, the original idea stinks, I got a better group of people, a better group of smart people that can build a better widget. And the third one is, well, we built a better widget. Now we got to negotiate our way through the process. And, and now this is the, uh, the clips where it starts to see where the negotiations get real and, and meaningful. And, and, and hopefully, hopefully not all of this is what happens in real life. So stay tuned here. We're going to roll our next clip. Frank. Mr. President. Linda. Let's strike the anti-collective bargaining provision from the bill. Linda and I have talked it over, and I think she's right on this. Tell Bob he can come by tomorrow afternoon. Sir, respectfully, I do not think you should give him the satisfaction. Well, give me a reason. Makes us appear weak. There's an opportunity for you to establish your supremacy. We should seize it. But without Birch's cooperation, we're fighting an uphill battle before we even get the bill to the floor. Frank, we discussed this. Sir, if you give in now, Birch will walk all over you for the next four years. I can get this bill on the House floor as is. I promise you. All right, Frank, show me what you can do. Thank you, Mr. President. That was her trying to take credit from my idea, advice she wouldn't take from me. Unacceptable. I will not allow her to sell my goods when she cuts me out of the profits. Put Fickner in the leaning yes column. Don't you think he's in neutral? He hates Birch. Yeah, but he owes Birch for the Ways and Means appointment. You put him in neutral. Who else? Ramirez is in neutral? Oh, this list is so shaky. 
Any one of them leaks it to Bob. No, what we need is one name. One person who can deliver 12. Black Caucus. Womack. What can we offer him? What does he need? My papa's file. Here we go. McCudden Air Force Base employs 3,000 people in his district. It's on the DOD's chopping block this year. Who do we know in the BRAC Commission? That's dangerous. Charlie's back to us trying to influence the DOD or the BRAC. No, no, no. What we do is we close another base. We leave enough money in the DOD's budget to keep Womack's base off the list. What we need... is someone we own. Don't board with this? It was his idea. Then why isn't he here? Well, we have to be careful until it's a done deal. I don't know, Frank. Think about it, Terry. You could become the first African-American majority leader in the United States Congress. Let's make some history. You don't care about history. You just want me because I can round up the votes. I need the votes, and I do care about history. But most importantly, Terry, you know how to lead. You're the head of the Black Caucus for a reason. So David becomes speaker, I become majority leader. And I stay on his whip. Why don't you want majority leader for yourself? I'm satisfied where I am. Maybe one day when you become speaker, you'll bump me up. This is the sort of thing that there's no turning back. I can throw a cherry on top. McCudden stays open. How? You don't want to know how. You just want the headline when you keep 3,000 jobs in your district. 12 votes? 12 votes. I can get you 10, probably 11. It's so refreshing to work with someone who will throw a saddle on a gift horse rather than look it in the mouth. Uh, Terry, let me call you right back. Terry Womack? Possibly. I've had three members of the Black Caucus tell me they're backing my play for the speakership. Interesting. I have a sense you've been disseminating some misinformation. No, I'm afraid it's you who are misinformed, David. You don't have three members backing you. You have ten. I made it very clear. I didn't want any part of this. Yes, you made it crystal clear. Then why are you telling people? Because they don't know you made it crystal clear. I have to go to Bob with this. He'll think you organized a coup, got cold feet, and are making me the scapegoat. David, if I pick up this phone right now and leak this story, Bob will have no choice but to drop you, even if he believes your version of events. Do you want to take a seat? I'm Frank. I'll make it short. The president? No, the speakership. David's making a play. What? He came to me for support. My first thought was to tell you right away, but then my second thought was to ignore my first thought because we have the votes, Bob. If there had been party revolt, I wouldn't have known about it. We don't need the whole party to revolt. We need 13. 13 Democrats plus the other side of the aisle. Are you out of your mind? People have been asking me that a lot lately. I'm inclined to start saying yes. Who are they, the 13? David and I are two. Terry Womack and 10 members of the Black Caucus make another 11. Is the president behind this? No, he doesn't have a clue. This was David's plan, executed by me. But there is an out for you, Bob. I can sway Womack either way, as long as you make him the next majority leader. And... The education bill. Now we're on the same page. I can't do that. You know I can't. You're the speaker, Bob. You can do anything you'd like. 
And I have to say, appointing the first African-American majority leader, why, that isn't a bad legacy to have. You'll say, well, man, it's the right man to fill your shoes. You won't make waves, you won't do interviews. You'll suck it up and be a team player. This was Frank's idea. I told you he was going to try to blame me on it. Ask around. Talk to Womack. I did. He said you came to him. He's lying, Bob. I would never... Shut up, David. Do you understand how you're to behave when we make the announcement? And if I don't play along? Then the DCCC will pour everything it's got in your primary opponent's campaign next cycle. We'll cleave you from the herd and watch you die in the wilderness. Tell us now, David. If you think it's best, Robert. And just think, he could have been a wolf. Oh, I hope that's not how politics really works. Robert, tell me it's not. Um, so I thought we were talking about education, not about, you know, creating a new speaker or playing a whole new policy game or DOD and... Unfortunately, that is the way the real world of politics works, and it's about power. It's about how, how power is maintained and, and, and gotten and, and achieved and used and, and utilized. And I think that uh, this clip shows very clearly that, that you know, if you want to get something done. Now, the one thing it did show I thought was really interesting is when you're negotiating, it's never a good tactic to start from your weakest point. And so, you know, while I have some distaste in politics in this clip, just sort of makes me feel like I need to go take a shower. Right? Uh, but in the end of the day, I've seen that in our movement far too many times, and the idea of school choice and charter schools and even public school choice, we're going to start with an, uh, a, a negotiation tactic which says, yeah, this is the max I want, which is the minimum I'm going to take. Right? Instead of actually pushing hard and, and playing the, the, the right way to get a victory. Right. So, look, we know, for, for example, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that parents and the public want universal choice. It's what our public schools are. It's what our charter schools are. And when we talk about private school choice, somehow this child is worth a little less because they earn a little more as a family. But any old billionaire can get a public school education, right? And so one of the things we've got to be careful about is, are we about a systemic reform that's for all kids? Are we about a negotiation for some kids? And, and I think that's the one lesson I take away from the original conversation even though the whole thing just sort of made me feel a little bit itchy and scratchy. See, that's because your background's not in politics, and no. mine is, and yeah. I, you know, it makes me, I, I, that's why I love this entire show, <laughs> because while the real world is not quite like this, um, at least not the parts I've been part of, granted, Indiana politics, we may be a little nicer here than in other places. Um, but the thing that speaks to me about this clip, uh, as it relates to the K-12 um, ed reform or school choice movement, is that it's all transactional. So Frank Underwood is, you know, talking to Terry. So he needs those votes. He needs the Black Caucus votes. He needs the votes to, to make sure that the speaker falls in line and then Terry gets to become the majority leader. And it's all horse trading. And I actually think we're pretty good at that. Um, you know, we, we get bills passed. We, we expand school choice options. But sometimes, and I don't think actually we do this, which is why I work here, because I love that we don't do this, that as a movement, we burn through people. Yeah. We use them to get what we want, and then we forget to either say thank you or uh, to sustain that relationship. Yep. And sometimes when programs go into place, we get really excited, 
And then two cycles later or two sessions later, a whole different group of people come back. They don't know us. They don't know school choice. They don't know ed reform. They don't know K-12 education even. And they're like, well, somebody told me this was a bad idea. Let's repeal it. Mm. And because we don't sustain those relationships, not necessarily just legislatively, you know, and this is true in all issues, not just in school choice, that, you know, something's happening. It's either really bad or it's really good. And we need a whole bunch of people to go and testify. Right. And so we call 20 parents and they show up and they do amazing. Right. They tell their stories and they go back home and it either passes or fails. And if it passes, that's great. They have no reason to come back. If it fails, that's really disheartening. Maybe they don't come back again because maybe we don't keep in touch with them. And, and, and there's no building toward the greater future. Um, that's kind of cliche, but that's something I think we do really well here at EdChoice that maybe some other organizations haven't, and that has led us to the state we are in right now, where it's become a little tougher to sell our idea. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I was going to say preach, uh, because that's exactly right. I mean, you know, and, and I'm, willing, I'm willing as an organization, we are willing as an organization to say, it's okay to look about sustainable relationships, not relationships just to be spontaneous to get something done. And, and while that's important, you know, I, I, I had one of my first arguments in this movement in 1996 with someone who's really uh, wealthy. It's like, no, you can create grassroots. And I'm like, no, you have to build grassroots over time. No, you can create it. No, you can build it. And the reality is, is you probably need to do a little bit of both, but we haven't been doing any of the building for a long time, right? We're just getting there. And it's and this sustainable building of relationships is something our movement has to do a lot more, if we even want to call it a movement. Otherwise, we won't be able to. And and I think that it's really important we we think about these are everyday people's lives that we're talking about. And so, again, that humility Working in the grassroots with genuine respect, it's something that we need to think more of. And politics doesn't often work that way. No. And in D.C., I mean, if you go to a coffee shop in D.C., they can probably tell you who the House Speaker and the, you know, Senate leader are. And maybe, maybe if you went to a coffee shop, you know, here in Indiana or out in Des Moines or down in Texas, they could name you one or two of those folks. But the reality is most people don't care about the inside baseball. They don't care about what we see in this clip, all the horse trading, all the backroom you know, uh, uh, dealing and wheeling and wheeling and dealing because they only care about what's happening at their kitchen table. So onward to our next clip where things get really interesting. Yes. You f***ing lied, Frank? <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, you lied to my face? Marty, I did not we, lie. You did not. We spent the whole weekend in that room poring over this bill line by line, and nowhere did it say anything about collective bargaining. Let's calm down and sit down, and we will discuss this. I will explain everything that's going on, and we will talk it out, no matter how long no, it takes. No more. This is going to be a very short meeting, because only one of two things are going to happen. Either you assure me right now that that amendment is out, or I am walking out that door, and I'm going to start launching missiles. The amendment was never intended to stay in the bill. It's just there for leverage, that's all. You threatened to cut federal funding from union school districts? Th that's not a poker chip, Frank. That's a dirty bomb. Look, the amendment is not staying in the bill. I just need you to work with me on performance standards. Performance standards? Are you kidding me? You agreed that they were already out. You can't just put them back in now, Marty, Frank. Look, look, I have a reputation to uphold. I am the one that made the union reps stay here for you while you're in Gaffney playing with your beach hood. You tell me right now, is that amendment in or out? There is a middle ground here, Marty. We just have to find it. I take that as a no. Okay. 
Marty, do not start a war. You know you're gonna lose. Me? Stamper, Marty and I have a good working relationship, or used to. You can see he has a temper, but I can usually cut through that and reason with him. But I may have pushed him too far, which is worrisome. Friends make the worst enemies. I've got to go. What's going on? The hotel for tonight's gala. They refuse to let Claire into that ballroom because their employees are union. Spinella. Yeah, he can go after me all he wants, but to go after my wife. No class. Meet me at the Colesworth. You got it. Why can't we just move it to another place? I looked into that. Everything's booked. You have to reserve these things weeks in advance. I got Stamper online looking for another venue somewhere. Francis, the delivery trucks are already at the Cotsworth. I can't have people showing up at a different place in case they don't get the email. Uh, this is my fault. I feel off. There's a half a million on the line here. I realize that. And I can't keep having my work take these hits on behalf of yours. It's more than just an inconvenience. I know. We'll solve it. I know what we're going to do. Honey, they're not going to let us have it inside. We're going to have it right here on their front steps, picnic style. What do you need from me? I need your manpower. Yes, sir. Call that loose that way. What do you want me to do? can lock the gates, and they've got the police on their side. Unbelievable. Hold on. Cassandra, I need 200 teachers at the Coatsworth Hotel. Right now, I need a full picket. 200? I don't know if we can get that. I don't want to hear it. Just get it done, right? I don't give a if they're teachers or not, frankly. Just get me 200 bodies. You know, call the Teamsters. Maybe they'll help us. We'll give them glasses if we have to. Tell the guys to look smart. Charlie, get off the phone. I need signs right now, at least 100. You know what? Let them set it up. It's actually better for us that way. This way they can't hide from us. You've put me in a terrible situation. What does a clean water gala have to do with teachers' union? Well, we have over 50 members of Congress gathered in one place. But the fact that these members of Congress are promoting pouring money out of the country while neglecting their teachers at home is precisely the problem. But this is private money, not public tax dollars, so... But we're not protesting the cause. We're protesting the congressmen and women themselves. Are these even teachers picketing? Sure, some of them, and some of them are people in... Excuse me. Frank, what... Don't take the food, we'll feed you later. Marty, Don't take Marty, the food. you know that old saying. The most dangerous spot in the world is to come between the Teamster and free food. Don't take the food, we're feeding you later. I'll take it. She'll take it. Who else is hungry? There you go. Plenty more coming, guys. I know you've all been out here for hours. Thank you, Freddie. The best ribs in DC. <laughs> Great. Marty, come on. You said your piece you got on the news. Come in and enjoy yourself. I respect you, Claire. You know I can't do that. Doesn't matter what side you're on, everybody's got to eat. You can have a plate of ribs. Yes, you can. Come I on. Can't. Yes, you can. Thank you, Claire, but I can't. You can do it. Come on, Thank Marty. You. I, come I on. I can't. Thank you. Thank you. Freddie's. You should go to Freddie's. So this clip goes on in the end to sort of like show the importance of messaging and how you use uh, events to message well. But I'm struck by this clip. It reminds me of the Milton Friedman quote, right? Hell hath no fury like a bureaucrat scorned, right? And so this is clearly the stage where the union guy feeling like he is not going to back down. And so you get people into corners. And, and again, 
the further we get into these clips, the further away we get from real people and real policy and real impact and real families and real teachers. It now all becomes a game, right? And I get that, and that process is politics is important, but it's interesting the further and further you get into this, the less and less it's about real people. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's about, you know, it's about politics. It's about power. It's about, you know, we'll see the, the teachers showing up and they're, they're striking. But um, at one point, uh, we, we talk, they, they talk about, I just need bodies, right? I just need bodies to show up. They don't even have to be teachers. Yeah. It's all about, and maybe I'm a little susceptible to this because I work in the field of, you know, public relations and public perception. But it's all about crafting that perfect image, that perfect narrative in the he said, she said, and upping the ante, right? So this starts out with, you know, talking about collective bargaining and performance pay, and it very quickly escalates. Things get really, really dicey because then you've got, you know, not just Frank Underwood and Marty fighting each other, but you've got a bunch of teachers dragged into it. You've got Frank Underwood's wife, uh, Claire Underwood's event in jeopardy because... About clean energy. It has nothing to do with education, but all of a sudden she can't hold her event because Marty called the hotel and got her event shut down because it's a union-operated hotel and all the waitstaff don't want to be part of it. And it's amazing, to your point, that nowhere in here are we actually talking about, well, I guess we did talk about for a hot second, you know, see what they do when there's a whole bunch of school kids running around the streets of Washington, D.C., but that's using kids as pawns. Yeah, that's exactly right. The kids and the teachers are being used in pawns in both those scenarios, right? And and that's, again, one of the reasons why I think, you know, we've got to be real careful as a movement and, and focus on long-term relationships. Although I thought at the end of this clip, which is great, where, where they forced to have that event outside, they, they brought in teachers or pseudo-teachers or whoever teachers, they knows? were to protest. Um, but real life can actually intervene. And real life is people are hungry. Yeah. And so they bring, they bring the out ribs and, and beer. And that's, and he goes, you know, we can always do, what was it, the line? He says, uh, we always can disagree, but everyone needs to be fed. Everyone needs to eat. Everyone I mean, needs it's, to eat. You know, and, and that's, yeah, that's true, because that is where Washington politics end and real life begins. And that is obviously a, a theme in an up, upcoming clip here. Um, well, the thing that should end the strike and the thing that does end the strike are not the same. Um, but I think most people in America would agree that the thing that, the thing that should end the strike is far more compelling than the thing that does. That's correct. So let's get into our next clip. We're almost a month into the strike, and we've got millions of kids stuck home from school. The the White House or Congress? I personally have very little sympathy for the teachers. We're over three weeks into the strike. It's costing the country billions of dollars, and instead of offering solutions... There's a big difference between taking a stand and sitting on your hands. I don't know whether to call it that. His agenda, and the problem is that he stole sound conservative ideas. The only smart thing he's done is lift his platform from the Republican Party. I admit it, Linda, this got away from me, but we can't turn back to... Time, we have to hold our ground. While our approval ratings continue to nosedive? Spinell and I worked together for years on dozens of labor-related bills. I thought he'd be reasonable. Well, you were wrong about that. Well, I didn't think he'd be insane enough to go on strike, and I didn't think the strike would last this long. So you've been wrong twice about this. Why should I believe you're right about holding out? We threatened collective bargaining in order to get performance standards and charter funding. That's the deal that we made. We took that stand. We lay down now, we lose it all. There'll be no reform, just an empty bill. I understand the logic, Frank, but we're in damage control now. But we can't close one wound by opening another. But we're the Democrats. We're the ones who are supposed to be defending the teachers. But you can't have it both ways, Linda. You can't have the reform you want and keep the teachers happy at the same time. You knew that when we started. Okay, then if we have to choose, we choose to keep the teachers happy. 
That is a mistake, Linda. We've already crossed the Rubicon. I'm telling you this. The president wants to change the bill. We should have done it three weeks ago. We didn't. So you have to do it now. Give me more time, Linda, please. If I can break this strike and get everything we want in this bill, can we agree that's preferable to folding? Of course, if we can count on that. Then but... count on me for just one more week. If the strike isn't over by then, I'll change the bill. Frank. No, one more week, that's all. This is the worst possible position to be in. If I water down the bill, the president will still see me as a failure. If the strike doesn't end in a week, I've forced myself into a corner. Only total victory will put me back in his good graces. The alternative is exile, which would mean the last five months were for nothing. I cannot abide falling back to square one. Bell's on. What about more school books, less bricks? No, it's too broad. We need a better soundbite, something Specific, something that points the finger directly at Spinella. He'll deny any involvement. Well, of course he will. So how do we get around that? We say he can't control his troops. There's no evidence it was a teacher. Who else could it be? Look, he's going to shift blame for the strike back on Congress. No, we need something clear, something clean, something that sticks in your head. Teachers need a lesson in self-restraint. No, you're not hearing me. People like teachers. No, we need something that makes Spinella the villain. His lack of control, his inability... Disorganized labor. It's disorganized labor, plain and simple. When you've got angry teachers throwing bricks through congressmen's windows, you've got to blame the union leadership. We'll be beefing up the security for the entire leadership. And I strongly encourage Marty Spinella to keep his people in line. This is starting to look like disorganized labor. Do you really think Marty Spinella is to blame? Whether Mr. Spinella is behind this or not, he might want to tone down the rhetoric before disorganized labor turns into organized crime. Disorganized labor. That should tell you the importance of simple, good, positive messaging. I love right? Claire Underwood. <laughs> she always comes in and saves him um, until later. Spoiler alert. She doesn't yes. later on in the show, obviously. Oh, okay. um, no, it, it was so simple, right? The, you know, Doug Stamper and Frank Underwood sitting there like, oh, I don't know. Let's put more words, not fewer. Let's. Let's really try to crystallize what we're thinking in our very smart heads. And Claire comes in, disorganized labor. Well, so it's really interesting now that we're looking at this clip. I mean, obviously, we know that uh, there's been a lot of unrest in teachers around the country. You know, uh, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of missing conversation about policies, but there has been a lot of unrest. And so what we're sort of seeing right now is fiction mirroring reality as opposed to reality mirroring fiction. Uh, but what's interesting about that is is it uh, gets worse and worse. And so a brick is supposedly thrown through the window of Frank Underwood and his, and his house. And, and so it turns into a uh, he said, she said violence, and that's how they came up with disorganized labor. Look at the end of the day. Again, this is just one step further away from real people, real life, and real issues. You know, instead of saying, hey, we need to talk about teacher evaluations and how they work best for kids, or hey, we need to figure out how funding is done. And so it's not just about more money. It's about how, how we make sure money goes to teachers, right? So in most states, as you know, we hire more non-teachers than teachers. This is a real question, right? So, and, and we all also know that in every single state, it's not the state that does the collective bargaining. It's the district. Right. So teachers, like they found in our poll, understand that. Now, the public doesn't, but teachers do. And they, they're mad at their districts for negotiating in, in bad faith in some ways. And so, look. The, this whole clip is, again, now we're getting to near the crescendo, near the end. We've started off, if you remember, with an idea that the president had, so I campaigned on it. We got some smart people in the room, come up with a bill. 
now we brought it to the unions, but we sort of, at the end of the day, pushed them a little too far, and now they've started to strike and become mean, and that's just further and further away. Yeah, did they or didn't they throw the brick? Who knows, right? But that's what we're talking about here. The headlines, the, the clips from cable news are, you know, they're about the strike, but then they're also about, you know, disorganized labor. And, and oh my goodness, I can't believe we've gotten to the point where, you know, we might even have a teacher throwing a brick through a congressman's window. And we are so far away from the actual issue of the fact that in Washington, D.C., presumably there are a whole bunch of kids out of school, maybe wandering around, not getting the education that they need, while the grown-ups literally and physically fight each other. Um, And this has a very interesting turn to it in our next clip that we get to, um, where we learn that, yes, in fact, grown-ups are not only sometimes obtuse, but very devious and sometimes very bad looking at you, Frank Underwood. So let's roll that one. Frank? So? You said you wanted to talk. You said you wanted to work out a compromise. I lied. Excuse me? I have no intention of working out a compromise. So then why the are we here, Frank? (laughs) The hell's the matter with you? you? You think this is some kind of a game? No. These are real people with families to feed. Would you please stop that? Stop what? In five seconds, I'm out of here. One, two, three, four. Goodbye, Frank. You know the difference between you and me, Marty? What? I'm a white trash cracker from a white trash town that no one would even bother to piss on. But here's the difference. I've made something of myself. I have the keys to the capital. People respect me. But you, you're still nothing. You're just an uppity dago in an expensive suit turning tricks for the unions. Nobody respects the unions anymore, Marty. They're dying. And no one respects you. The most you'll ever make of yourself is men like me. Men with real power. Yes. I can smell the on your breath from here. You think you can get under my skin? I know I can. Kiss my Frank. You can't afford to walk out. Watch me. I've got a dead, underprivileged kid in my pocket. What do you have? I have two million honorable teachers. Fair enough, but I got something even better. Go ahead. Open it. Okay. I'll play your game. You're an idiot. Stamper through it.
You're full of Oh, no, Stamper threw the brick, and I made sure Claire distracted my security. Are you kidding me? And to think you wanted me to apologize to my wife. You would do something that low, Frank? I arranged the brick, Marty, just like I arranged this meeting this afternoon. Back off, Frank. Why don't you just get down on your knees where you really belong? Back off, Frank. Because the only thing you're going to get from me is... And who's gonna believe you? You just assaulted a United States congressman, which is a felony. But I'm not gonna press charges, Marty. Because the strike ends now. So that's a very powerful scene, right? Um, and it's a scene where uh, you're seeing one adult provoke another adult to get power, to win, ultimately. Um, and, you know, the line where he's like, I've got one underprivileged dead child yeah. uh, versus two million honorable teachers. That, that, just, that, just, that just, again, makes me shiver with, with uh, uh, disgust. I'm sure that's never happened in politics. But... Uh, you know, I think what I take away from this is, is at the end of the day, we're now to the to the scene where we're so far away from what the right policy is that we're talking about children and teachers as mere functionaries of a battle of 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 of, of power. Yeah, and there's there's nothing in this scene that has anything to do with the actual bill. There's nothing here. You use the right word, powerful, in the literal definition. Mm-hmm. There's nothing but power in this room, and, and somebody has to come out the, the winner. You know, when Marty goes to open that briefcase, yeah, you kind of you, you wonder what's in there, right? You know, not, not to steal from another Kevin Spacey movie, but the movie Seven, right? Yeah. You, you know, what's in the box? I don't know what's in the box. Well, what's, what's I thought money briefcase? was in the box first, right? I, I thought, thought money too. Him, right? yeah, I thought the first time I saw right? it, I was like, oh, they're going to buy Marty yeah. out. Nope, yeah. it's a brick, and that's, you know, and you find out that, yeah, people will stoop to remarkably low levels to get what they want, and they forget all about the reason why or the reason why they're supposed to want it. And I just, I, I actually also get chills when I watch this scene because it's so base and awful and what you don't want politics to be about. Yeah, I'd say but... it's the perfect example of do the ends really justify the means? In this case, uh, this is the most literal vision of that I've had in a long time. Yeah. The ends justify any means whatsoever in Frank Underwood's mind. Absolutely. I mean, he's a terrible human being, yeah. so let's be real yeah. clear. Like, yes. most of the people I know who are in Congress, not terrible human beings. Correct. Not like Frank Underwood at all. That's you know, right. this should not be taken as a literal representation of our, you know, legislative branch in Washington. Sadly, it's what people think, though. It is what people right? think. And people think this. Maybe they've seen it so much, but they, that's what they think of their congressman. Yeah, I don't think I've, I've ever heard any of the people I've known who run for or served in Congress, right. you know, act like or talk like Frank Underwood. But then again, this is Hollywood. It's supposed to be a little bit Agreed. much. Um, it certainly is a lot. And that's the thing. Do, do, does the end in this case justify the means? As we find out in our last clip. That's correct. This works, yep. and uh, and Frank Underwood gets what he wants. The president gets what he wants. Marty, I 
don't know what happens to Marty, but, you know, he obviously didn't get what he wanted. And it's one last thing about this clip before we go to our last clip is that this is, we talked earlier about fear and anger, right? Mm -hmm. Fear and anger are tremendous motivators in politics. It is so much easier to scare someone than it is to educate them about an issue or to educate them on the issue of education. It's easier to say, those vouchers just stealing your money. They hurt us. You Don't know, take us. Don't, yeah, exactly right. Those religious right. schools just teaching crazy values. Yeah. And, you know, this scene is the literal representation of, of anger getting the best of people. M- Marty's probably in the same place and working with the same guy who ran the Tobacco Institute. Thank you for smoking. That was a great movie. If you ever saw that movie, uh, Out of a Job. Yeah, Out right? of a Job. Out of a Job. Out of a Job. Bye, Marty. Yeah. All right, our last clip. Is it success or is it failure? The President of the United States. Good morning. The Education Reform and Achievement Act that I sign into law today will affect every child and parent in the United States, will ensure a better educated workforce for decades to come, and will reinforce America's preeminence as an intellectual superpower. And I'd like to thank one man in particular who never lost sight of the larger mission, who spearheaded this bill from the beginning, and that's Congressman Frank Underwood. so much for all the help you gave us in getting this bill passed. No, thank you, Frank. This was your baby from the beginning. I appreciate you standing your ground on this one, Frank. I'm smart enough to admit when I was wrong. I was just telling Frank we should set up a weekly so he can keep us up to date on what's going on in the house. That sounds like a great idea. Congratulations, sir. Let me ask you a question. Okay. You, you uh, ended the last sort of segment before we went to the clip saying, you know, we get to see if it's a success or failure. What's your answer to that question? Well, if I'm Frank Underwood, it's a raging success. Not right. only did I get the bill through difficult situations uh, that I navigated with not particularly good behavior, but I wind up looking like the winner with the president. I'm going to get a weekly meeting with the president. My power, my status goes up. I actually have no idea what was in the final bill. Do you? No. <laughs> no, they never really talk about that because, But it will know, make America the intellectual it's, superpower. It's going to be amazing, again. right? The, yeah. te- the teleprompter said it's going to be amazing, and obviously the teleprompter does not lie. But this is where we end this whole, uh, the whole series of clips is we end it with, okay, the bill is passed, the president signs it, he hands a couple pens to kids. Hey, look, kids did make it into, the, <laughs> into this podcast go, after kids. all. Here here. Well done. Have a pen. Yeah, have a pen. Congratulations. I signed one letter of my name, and, you know. So I guess that's positive. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. What would you say? Success or so failure? Let me, let's walk through it. Clearly, Frank Underwood is a winner here, right, in, in the way you wanted to find his 
view of winning. The president had a success and he got a bill passed. Uh, the kids had a success in the fact that they got to get a pen, right, at a White House. I mean, if that's what you determine success to be. And I think ultimately, I think it's a, it's a massive failure because in its very inception, it started from the wrong place. And so if you're going to build your house on sand, you're ultimately going to get washed away. And so this, this whole series of clips is how we build policy in, on a house of sand and not on a house that's a firm foundation. And so a firm foundation means uh, involving and including parents and teachers from the very beginning, being genuine in the, in the policy goals. Don't agreeing on, not agreeing on everything, right? But also not walking away from the table when you don't get everything, right? So, so while we understand power, power can't be the end. And that's ultimately what this whole thing is about. So ultimately, it seems to me, we can't call this a success, for kids at least, and for families and for teachers. Uh, we can only call it success for politics and power. That's true. Would you even go so far as to say your house of sand, house of cards? Ooh. Oh, I Did don't I know. Did I mean that? Did oh, my God. Did you mean to do that? That was a bit punny of me. Yeah, no, it was very <laughs> so, punny. Um, all right, well, I think, you know, I think you summed it up beautifully there. Politics and power. And when you start from that as your premise, lots of P words here today, yeah. but that's your premise, then you're always going to wind up building a house that is not sustainable long term. And I think that's one of the things, I'm obviously self-serving in saying this, but that we do really well here, is that we try very, very hard we know it's slow going. We know we're not going to get school choice in every state to the standard that we really want to see, which is universality and eligibility for every child. We're not going to get there overnight. But when you try to get there overnight, when you try to cut deals, cut corners, cut throats in some parts of this, uh, this show, that is not sustainable in the long term. So, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, from House of Cards most of them are not lessons on how you actually want to live your life or how you want your government to function. But I think, you know, great, great series of clips, great discussion. Uh, thank you so much, Robert, for being here, for joining us for this, uh, this edition of the, the Pop Culture and uh, School Choice podcast. And uh, we'll be back at you real soon. Thanks. It's going to be fun. Look for next time. 